As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. We don't have a media infrastructure like Fox News. We are not shaping people's consciousness in the kind of like hegemonic way that I think right-wing media is doing. We have a hell of a trouble with thought control on our side. We really? I know. I don't think we could do thought control. (laughs) We don't want it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today knows a lot about the progressive infrastructure in Minnesota. She is Dorn Schrantz, an organizer who is the executive director of Isaiah, which calls itself a multiracial, statewide, nonpartisan coalition of faith communities, black barbershops, child care centers, and other community-based constituencies fighting for racial and economic justice. I very much enjoyed my conversation with Dorn about her path to running Isaiah, what they do, and how they fit into the politics in the state of Minnesota. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Doran at Isaiah. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Doran, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Doran Schrantz. I am the director of an organization called Isaiah and also the director of an organization called Faith in Minnesota. I have been doing community-based organizing, power building work for about 20 years. I trace a lot of my commitment to doing work this way, to growing up in a town called Tomo, Iowa, which is now recently in the news again, because there is a giant John Deere strike happening in my hometown. I have been very excited to follow that because some of my most formative memories are the strikes, the meatpacking strikes of the early 80s. So there was this major strike in Austin, Minnesota, and then there was a companion strike in Ottumwa, Iowa in the early 80s. There was a documentary made about it. But I, my elementary school or I went to school, all the dads were on strike. So um, they lost. And then the subsequent decade, two decades, by the time I was in high school, the largest employer in our town was a meth dealer. So there is a direct connection between the decline of the labor movement, the strike, the loss of that, 
the farm foreclosure crisis, the collapse of the town economically, the experience that people had, I had, my sister had, people had growing up in a place like Atomwa. I wasn't necessarily politicized around that, but I did have the question, I did have the question, like, could that have gone another way? But really what I wanted at the end of high school was to get out of Atomwa, Iowa. That was probably my primary driving <laughs> Can I ask you one question yeah. about that, yeah. about that, that origin story a little bit, which is, Given that you work for faith in Minnesota and something called Isaiah, did you was it a religious upbringing? What's your relationship with Actually, faith? Actually, no. We grew up as exiled Catholics. So Exiled my, sounds like you were cast from the church. We were cast. It's true. Really? So <laughs> I, I was we were cast from the church before I was conscious, but my family, um, I mean, I was a baby. My family, long line of Catholics on both sides, but my dad was married before he married my mother. So when I was, they tried to baptize me at St. Mary's in Atomwa. My parents were not allowed to come to the altar because their marriage was not seen as, you know, sanctified or, you know, like legit by God. Because of the divorce. Because of the divorce. Yes. That seems a little rigid to me. It's a little, yeah, no, it's a little rigid. I didn't grow up going to church. But did you believe, were you like raised as Catholics? No, we were not. Um, My grandmother, who (laughs) is from Minnesota, actually, I end up back in Minnesota. But um, my grandmother would secretly bless us whenever we visited. So she would would hunt us down and then try to put oil on our foreheads. You just blessing with a kind of like holy oil. But it's a very pungent smell. It's like it's incense smell. I don't know what exactly the smell is. Maybe it's like frankincense or myrrh or something like, you know, but it's a very. And so my mom would know immediately. <laughs> and my grandmother had like blessed us when she wasn't looking. But um, my, my, my. So was that, that your mother wouldn't approve? No. Oh. No. No. My mom was not. My mom and my dad were not super, they weren't like deeply antagonistic towards organized religion. It didn't turn into like a deep resentment. So I didn't grow up feeling like, you know, sort of polarized or antagonistic, but I did grow up feeling exiled from it. And I had some feelings about that. And then where I grew up in the eighties in Iowa, so that's like right on the Missouri border, basically the evangelical movement was really taking off. So I was also surrounded by the growth of very robust, fundamental, more fundamentalist evangelical Christian culture. I'd go to my friend's church and I'd try to avoid the altar call. Like, you know, it was, I had a lot of very intense experiences of sort of being in collective spaces where the question is, are you going to be in or out? And that was how I experienced religion. It's like there's a line and you're either in or you're out. And you thought of yourself as out. And I thought of myself as out. And then as I grew up, it's almost like I chose. It's, it's, a, it's like I can't quite be in that. However, I was quite fascinated by religion. I read a lot about it. I explored it. I wanted to know what it meant to be in or out. <laughs> I wanted to understand like human relationship to the spiritual or God or to the miraculous. And I don't think of that in a non-materialist sense exactly, but like 
I had a deep, like sort of affinity for there's meaning in the world that is beyond what I can comprehend. And, and I can have a relationship to that meaning. I was seeking that. I wasn't closed off, you know, to the idea that people have religious and spiritual experiences that really shape and define who they are and communities have them. Was it a political family, like left, right, Democrat, Republican? My dad was older. He was 17 years older than my mother. He was a very almost like FDR style Democrat, I'd say. He grew up during the Great Depression. He was a Franklin Roosevelt post-World War II, post-Depression Democrat. And my mom was a Democrat too. I don't think she thought about it as much. It was more of like she was culturally a Democrat. (laughs) But no, my family was not super political. My dad got into public trouble a lot in our town. So we grew up in a small town. And my dad was pretty iconoclastic. He was not a factory worker. So the other kind of in or out experience I had in that town was very, it was very white. I think I met two black people. Well, Iowa in general. Yeah. Yeah. is very white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was a very small white environment, but it was incredibly class divided. There was no 1% that was living in Tama, Iowa at that time, but there was a river. <laughs> there was no, like, you know, it wasn't, I mean, there were people who aspired to be in the 1% or especially like in status sense, but it was, you know, that, that didn't exist. Um, but there was a, a river that divided the town between the north side and the south side. And the people who worked in John Deere, the people who worked in Hormel, the people who worked, lived on one side of town and the people who were more like, professionals like worked for the healthcare system or, you know, we were the regional hospital system, lived on the north side of town. So my dad was actually a doctor. He's a pathologist, which is why we were in Atomwa. So, but we grew up on the south side of town, like almost on purpose. It was basically on purpose. You know, it was kind of like, that's where he saw himself as being from. He had enough power in the regional health system to have lots of fights with the health system to the point where he took out ads in the Atoma Courier to go after, you know, profiteering in the regional health system. So he was like a, he was very passionate about what he did and he didn't really mind the social or political consequences of that. And I really admired that. On the other hand, both my mom and dad struggled a lot with um, substance abuse. And then my mom had been to Vietnam. Like, that's how she paid for nursing school. So she experienced pretty severe post-traumatic stress disorder, which um, made her life and kind of my early childhood difficult until she took care of that. So I also grew up where we were not quite... We, were, we didn't quite fit in with the sort of pretend status class. In fact, you know, there were periods when we weren't allowed to play with certain kids. It was kind of like that. It sounds like a, a fairly psychologically complex upbringing. Yes. Without knowing you, I think about a kid coming out of that kind of world, going to the University of Chicago and majoring in English. And I'm connecting that with you using phrases like non-materialist. I grew up in a in a in a Jewish family that was fairly anti-religion 
going back generations and pro labor and and maybe socialist in the early parts of the 20th century what happened in the generations before me shaped me of course and so tell me about like going off to a, a fancy school like that i did go to university of chicago um and i had to fight with my dad to go to the university of chicago because you know university of iowa was good enough for most people and it should be good enough for me too that was his attitude about it but i really wanted to go some of it was about um uh being in a city, you know, uh, something really different. And then some of it was like, I was so starving for like intellectual. I wanted to know what the word materialist meant. You know, like I felt like there was some kind of knowledge or knowing or meaning that was missing that I was hungry for. And I actually connected to that, to my spiritual and kind of like human development, like what, who I wanted to become. And I needed more. U of C was a top choice. They have this like core curriculum. You like start with Plato, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe get up to Nietzsche. I think they've evolved since then on the on the dead white guy, you know, curriculum. But um, I I wanted that really badly. I felt like I needed that. So um, it did. It wasn't until I was there. Kind of, you know, there's like a culture shock factor, but like one of the culture shock factors was meeting like real rich people, people who were from a class that I had never encountered and had upbringings. I'm, I'm talking like, I mean, there was lots of normal people there. Too. I mean, like people like me there too. Um, but there were also people who had been in East Coast or West Coast elite prep school environment from the time they were in kindergarten. Yeah. You know, they, they the were Andovers like and the Exeters. Yeah, okay. there was those people. Then there was like, you know, new money, you know, like the CEO of Pepsi's kid. Is there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was like, whoa, it was very, very intimidating for about three months. I went to a public, like a regular public school. It was fine, you know, but I wasn't, I didn't read Milton. And then about three months in, I was like, you know, that's some kids have been to more finishing school than me, like, but they're not smarter. I kind of had a like, no, I can do this. I had a really powerful experience there. Once, once I like adjusted, it was very eye opening. What's left with you when you look back and it's been a while, what, what's left with you in terms of what opened your eyes and what did you see? I think I have two responses to that question. And one was um, actually as college was closing out, there was a bit very eye-opening, which probably was closer to what like led me down this path, like the path that I'm on now. This is like a more abstract answer, but I really do credit my education at the UFC. It taught me how to think, you know, like how to like critically think really rigorous, like very rigorously. I'm not like a PhD, you know, but. But you got a good education. I got a really good education and I feel like I deploy that every day. And secondly, I think the part of me three months in that was like, I can do this. I can, I can totally do this. I'm not like I can, has made me pretty passionate about the democratization of that experience. It's elite and I got to go and it's not because I'm special. It's because I was in a position where like, I could find that path both financially and in terms of having parents sit for all the complex psychological experiences I had with them. 
they ultimately pushed me circumstance and conditions I could go have that experience. I'm sure that's true. I think there's a lot of tension around eliteness right now among the elites. And I think it's reasonable to to realize that a far, far greater number of people could benefit from a place like that than do. And at the same time, you're probably pretty smart and probably were distinguished from the lower half of the class that you went to high school with. Yeah. And so like there ought to be a place for, you know, like in defense of of elite places, there ought to be a place for someone to have that kind of experience that brings what you brought to it and what others of your peers did. Yeah. Just to be clear, I don't feel guilty about going to the University of Chicago like at all. No. I hear you in the elite discourse and a lot of it is, um, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. There's an elite discourse that's related to the conversation about Trump, that's related to the conversation about like white working class people. And a bunch of that is, is silly. (laughs) So like, I mean, my own opinion is like, there's talent everywhere of many different types everywhere, especially, uh, undiscovered talent, but that doesn't mean everyone is equally talented or equally intelligent. Or equally intelligent or equally talented in every or way. Or equally hardworking or, you know. Or all equally the, hardworking. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Or would want even what I wanted. Like there's a lot of people who wouldn't want what I wanted. You know, like that's that's also true. Right. Who, who, would, who would want to read Milton and, <laughs> and, and think. Right. And, right. And think about, I don't know, Lycidas or something. Yeah. Or what is the meaning of justice or citizenship? Yeah. So. Yeah. You come out of that school, uh, I guess there must be about five years before you hook up with the group that you are now at. Tell me about those five years. Well, it was a little, it was a little longer than that. Okay. So there was a stint. I don't know if you want this in the podcast. Well, just, just give me <laughs> a quick. a long life story. <laughs> <laughs> well, give, just give me a quick, a quick view of, of the, your pre-Isaiah years out of school. I acted professionally in Chicago. As so a, I, I did as an acting actor. On, yeah. on the stage. Yes. I, uh, I wasn't, I was an actor and, um, we had, I acted in everything from like the fringe festival, you know, like we've made theater with folks from college and other people. And to like, I did a couple plays at like the Steppenwolf in Chicago. So I kind of had a gamut of experiences doing kind of like professional theater and garage theater. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? Did you? I would say that at U of C, I had this incredible academic experience. And then I had an incredible experience with the student-run, democratically-run theater at U of C. So it was a, um, we did, the, the U of C did not have a department. So you couldn't major, at back at that time, you couldn't major in theater, which actually was a gift for me because... I think it was more amazing for a bunch of students to run theater and decide what the seasons are and direct and act in that environment. It was like, it was an amazing experience. Um, it's probably where I learned kind of as I overcame my complex psychological childhood. <laughs> I learned 
know, you know, like, so, so that shit I had to work through. Like, I, I worked through a lot of that through that experience. Like it was like, oh, I have agency. I can make decisions. People like me, you know, I can be respected. I have a voice. Like I can rehearse. And actually I apply that a lot in organizing right now. Like how do you rehearse who you are or rehearse who you want to become or like practice public life? You know, you you have to create muscles for that. You have to try on public experiences and public, you know, you have to actually rehearse it. And I think theater for me was like a rehearsal of my own sense of leadership and agency. I never would have put those words on it at that time, but that is what it was. That's absolutely fascinating to me. I think because I, I'm thinking about it through the eyes of a father of two daughters who are, you know, one's in college, one's in middle school, but I think about that, how do you go through a process of growing up? And here's part of you, how you grew up. Exactly. Yeah. It was a huge, it was very formative. But the problem was, I, I mean, not the problem, it was fine. Of course, I had that intense experience. And I was like, I want to do theater for the rest of my life, of course, because I had this amazing experience. And then I went out and did theater for like like real professional theater. And I really had a good time. I learned a ton. I learned a lot doing that. I wasn't half bad at it. But I pretty quickly was like, I don't think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. It's like having a, a relationship with a bad boyfriend for like your entire life. You know, like you wait for people. <laughs> you like wait for people to call you. You're like, like, you know, basically everyone else gets to make decisions about whether or not like you get to do something. And then the theater that was made professionally, you know, it wasn't it wasn't root. The thing that was so cool about theater at U of C was like, it was, we were making theater for ourselves and our wider community. So, so even if it was bad, like I'm sure a lot of it was terrible. Like it was resonant with a group of people. So it was alive. It was alive in a way that like, you know, the highly manicured productions that people pay $75 or $150 to go see, it can be alive. You know, I'm not saying it's, that's impossible, but it's, it's a very different thing. So like I, for a while thought, can I make theater come alive in politics and communities? And so I did a bunch of side projects with some people like at the Kovler Center for Human Rights. We did like evening of storytelling and interviews. We did all this like interesting stuff like that. Anyway, so, so I kind of went down that path for a little while. And then pretty soon I was like, I am so political. I just want to do, I want, I want to do something I actually need to take the thing that I feel so driven about and actually do the thing. <laughs> so serendipitously, there's another big word. Um, I met a guy in my neighborhood who was a community organizer. I ran into him in a coffee shop, like across the street from my apartment. And I was ranting with one of my friends about something at the time. I don't even remember. And he was like, hey, would you – I he introduced himself. He worked for the Logan Square uh, Neighborhood Association. <laughs> and uh, I ended up meeting with him, and he told me about organizing. And I, at that point, had been reading everything – I mean, this is very UFC. I, I was deeply – and it was a deep reading jag. I was like – I was re obsessively reading Hannah Arendt. I was like reading – sort of current events. I was reading about like international politics. I was reading about corporate control. I was reading, I was like, I was on a jag. 
And the main question I was asking, and this was the first time that I drew a line all the way back to sitting at a dinner table with a plastic pineapple tablecloth with my best friend's dad who had lost his job forever at John Deere and was used to have been so filled with joy and would not speak or look at us. He was so humiliated. And I drew a direct line to what I, I mean, and this is like the, this is the end of the Clinton era. So it's not Trump. <laughs> I drew a direct line to the decline of democratic power to like I, everything from like, I was like AstroTurf organizations, corporate control, the Powell memo, like all of that to like, that didn't have to go that way. There could have been a different story that has something to do with power. And I am very interested in the question of power. Like, who has it? Who gets to have it? Who has it? How do you produce it? How do people have it? How, how does it not happen up here? And I hear you on the elite thing, but there has to be power, like vehicles for people to have power that they concretely and materially experience. Otherwise, they get destroyed spiritually, emotionally, their sense of full humanity, the ability for them to have dignity. Like there is a direct line. Economically, yes. Active and corporate to the individual, like almost interiority. So like that was the line, that was the question that I needed to pursue. So I was like, whoa, I didn't know. The career office never told me there was a thing called like community organizing. I did know about labor. I was, I was at that point really thinking maybe I'll go into labor organizing. That was like where I was at. Um, and I really very immediately, I didn't want to, I kind of thought about grad schools. Like, you know, I thought about like joining a kind of, now I would put words on a kind of more like technocratic angle. What resonated for me about labor organizing and, and then community organizing was there is a construction of the nature of the relationship that you have with people that isn't a downward gradient. So I'm not advocating for them. I'm not doing the public planning for them. So I, I, I believe in expertise, but there has to be some space where there's a witness, like we have power not I'm doing something for you. So I thought about it a lot, like where do I want to be positioned in relationship with others? <laughs> you know? Just to be like real about it, at that point in my life, I wanted to learn what it meant for me to have power. So it's not just about other people. It was like, what would my experience be if I had a public life, if I was political? If I got to, you know, I would see people operate. It's almost like the rehearsal question. What would that look like? How would I change if I had this experience of becoming political, like becoming a public person with others? I wanted that for myself, which I think is a really important part about organizing. Like I'm not separate from it. What am I looking for? So I'll stop there. That is a absolutely intriguing basis for which to make a career transition. Tell me about what you did. Well, I um, uh, got a job for incredibly low pay, but I had been acting, so I was used to that, uh, at a coalition 
of community-based organizations, kind of community organizing, not community-based, community organizing organizations. They were they were a coalition of neighborhood, I don't know, like, you know, there's kind of like the Chicago Alinsky model neighborhood organization. So there was a coalition particularly focused on campaigns around safety, um, like public safety. It was called the Coalition for Neighborhood Safety. And they were doing a bunch of like community policing stuff, which then by the time I was there, most of those organizations were hyper jaded about that possibility. And I uh, learned over the course of the year what a terrible, I shouldn't have named it. I don't think it still exists. They were terrible. It was a terrible organization with terrible politics. And I learned a lot. (laughs) (laughs) They were very, very bad. Actually dying, dying organization. You know, it was like most of its membership was like, oh, they were in it for, this is hilarious. They were, this is so, this is a classic organ. They were in it for the free AmeriCorps Vista. So like the Chicago had a contract with AmeriCorps Vista. So then it would farm out interns basically for a year and they were paid. So all these neighborhood organizations were like still at the table because they were like, we get like a free staff person for a year, but we hate these people. Mm. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound very inspiring. And we like, we feel like the Chicago Alliance for Neighborhood Safety, like cut a deal with the cops and then stole all the money. You know, I mean, it was a little bit like that. So I was a very intense political, I learned a lot. A lot of my naivete was burned off over the course of that year, which is a good thing. What was next? I kind of went through that as like, I don't really know exactly where I want to take all this. What I did have at the Chicago Alliance for Neighborhoods I was a mentor. There was a guy who was awesome. His name was Emmett Mosley. He's a black pastor from Gary, Indiana, organizer. And he was great. <laughs> like he really started to train me, started to treat, take me seriously, started to like give me a sense of like what the craft was about. And I loved that. It's like the same thing that makes me want to go to UFC and start with Play-Doh, makes me want to like start with the basic, like what is organizing? What is its history? How do you do it? Like I want to apprentice myself. Like that was my orientation about it. And he took me up on that and like challenged me, pushed me, you know, we use a phrase and like sort of old school community organizing agitation. Like it was like, it was it's political agitation. It's like personal leadership, like get in there, get in the fray, <laughs> you know? like power analysis, all that stuff. And then he also drove me around Chicago. He took me to Gary. I worked, I helped, I helped him with a side campaign he was doing, went to a public meeting, Anyway, he was great. He sent me to a thing called that we call mysteriously week long training. So it's like a week of uh, it. It is a week of training. So it's a it's a literal it's a literal title. It is week long training. So, but it is a intensive organizing and leadership training that includes leaders like volunteers and organizers or like new organizers. And it was with a sort of national network called the Gamaliel Foundation. Um, it was the thing that Obama worked for for five seconds um, early, early in his in his community organizing career. I had an almost religious experience. <laughs> like that, it was it is faith based organizing. So I actually ran into a lot of paths. I was and I didn't quite compute that it was faith based organizing when I first went. I, I went. I remember the first day. I was like, holy. There's like a lot of clergy, like a lot of clergy here and church people. 
you know, and I was, you know, again, I wasn't like polarized against the church, but that was not, I had, I'd been very, very far from even being around that for a long time. And, um, kind of freaked me out. But then over the course of the week, two things happened. I had like a very intense, powerful experience myself as like, what do I want? What is my self-interest? Like, why do I want to organize? It was this kind of becoming experience. And then secondly, I had a very, I hate this word because it's so abstract. I had a like, almost like healing experience around my relationship with religion there was a Catholic priest who was in my room and we ended up in this powerful experience where he, I, I, I was really mad at him because he was so introvert. He was like, he was always holding himself at a distance from the room. And I found myself over the course of the week, like being frustrated by that. And then I went and had a conversation with him. I had a conversation about it publicly in the room. And then he pulled me aside afterwards and he had tears in his eyes. And he was like, Doran, I think that, first of all, he was like, thank you. I, I was, I'm scared. I am scared. I am scared to like be in the fray. Like I'm scared of that. And I know I'm called to do it and I'm scared to do it. And then he said to me, but here's the thing I want to say to you, like you're meant to do this and you're holding back, like, and, and, I want you to understand, like, I can't remember exactly the words he used, but it was almost like absolution. Like, you're okay. You don't, <laughs> you're not, basically, like, you're not outside. You're not exiled. That was my experience of the conversation. And everything's fine, basically. You know, like, everything is good. And I, like, so that was really powerful. And then I got into, like, a late night, like, these Lutheran pastors, they were, they would stay up late at night and debate like whether or not prayer works or like what the Bible really says about X, Y. And I would sit with them while they drank beer. <laughs> I drank beer, just like listen to them. And then I met like amazing, like regular leaders, you know, like leaders from places. My future husband, we were dating at the time he came, but we were about to get engaged. Like he came and picked me up from this like, you know, community college in Joliet, Illinois, after the course of that week. And, um, I was a little bit like fire was coming out of my eyes, you know? <laughs> I mean, it really wasn't a cult, but like that being said, he, um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. This is the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm going to do. And you either going to like be on board with that or not, but this is what I'm doing. Like I am going to build organizations like connected with people like this and do politics from this vantage point. That is what I'm doing. And that was what I set out to do. So pretty soon after that, I ended up, I wanted a place where I could really learn. I really wanted apprenticeship. And then I wanted to work in organizing. So I found a spot at Isaiah. My parents had moved back. I was traveling back and forth. I cold called like the three co-directors at the time. <laughs> and I went and met with them and they offered me like a, the apprenticeship level kind of job for organizing. And so we moved here. Our intention was to move back to Chicago after a little bit, but my husband got a job working for the Wellstone Senate campaign that year. That was the year that Wellstone was running for a second term. I think it was second. And um, he ended up volunteering. So we were like, okay, well, we'll stay another six months. Then Wellstone died in the plane crash. 
that was a very intense politicizing experience like for a whole host of reasons. As for staying, like I was learning what I wanted to learn. And so it's been 17 years. What is Isaiah? So there's Isaiah now and there's Isaiah back then. And they what they share in common is uh, a deep commitment to leadership development agency, sort of a belief, a theory of change, similar to labor unions, like you have to build democratic power, you have to build it in the context of vehicles and containers, that it's about the development of grassroots leaders in a base that then acts in the world to impact the conditions of their lives. It was totally faith-based at that time. It was like 64 churches, not faith-based in the sense that it had a particular like religious slant per se, although it was culturally very Christian. So my sort of pursuit of a set of questions involved with the Isaiah um, over the last 17 years have been, can you transform an organizing organization that's good into a vehicle that can build multiracial democratic power grounded in the agency and development of actual human beings and be human scaled at that level, but also be politically relevant. Not a boutique, not boutique, politically powerful, politically relevant, and multiracial and dynamic and strategic and responsive to the times. And so now Isaiah is like, it's a whole set of bases and constituencies. So we have the Muslim coalition, which is 30 mosques, but increasingly we have a small business association that's connected with that, like that works particularly as Muslim folks who were up Somali predominantly who work in the care industry of various kinds between childcare, home care, transportation, like they're, you know, adult daycare. We do apartment organizing. So we've done a lot of like work in apartments um, in various like geographic locations. We have something called the Black Barbershop and Black Church Cooperative, which uses barbershops as institution, not uses them, but like like as, as engines. We have 512 community-based childcare centers that are in a project called Kids Count on Us. And that is community-based childcare centers that are working towards fully funding childcare and also sort of exploring how they can do collective bargaining, essentially, but without an actual labor contract with DHS and with the government around wages, benefits, like also licensing and regulation. We have a young adult project. We have a C4. So we have Faith in Minnesota, which is individual membership. We have chapters all over greater Minnesota. We have like a rural organizing project. (laughs) So right now, I think of Isaiah as a as like a vehicle for multiracial democratic power building that we create the conditions in which that is possible and build the structures, the culture and the leadership that unleashes that kind of organizing in many, many venues. And what holds it together is a political analysis, a deep and profound commitment to the culture of organizing and a strategic horizon that we share, political horizons that we share. And we want to have state power. We want to be politically relevant. We want to be part of a movement ecosystem, you know, all that stuff. So that's what I've been doing for the last 17 years. That's ambitious. It was, it was quite ambitious. Yeah. The Isaiah that I came into could not have done 
any of those things. And I didn't know in the beginning what I was doing, but it was, it was, I, I sort of think about like for myself, the drive is always, there's something I'm, I'm, there's like a question. It's like the question that drove me out of acting. It's like, can this have relevant power that then goes all the way back down to my friend's dad that isn't instrumental at that level? It isn't tactical, but, but it's also not irrelevant. So a lot of projects that are at that scale, they, they are not able to be politically relevant because it's not I mean, a lot of times people talk about things being big, and I don't know that the question is big. I think the question is politically relevant. (laughs) So meaning, do you have power? So that was really driving me. Another question that's been really driving me the past 15 years, especially in a place like Minnesota, is I didn't predict it, but I saw the incredible political volatility that was emerging as a result of racial change that there's enough change that it is animating white anxiety and that that was extremely dangerous politically. And so how do you build the multiracial democratic capacity to anchor anchor us in the hurricane that is coming? <laughs> you know? So the process of taking a white Christian organization and saying, we have to become something radically different to meet that moment and be politically relevant and have relationships across a movement, including like labor is powerful in Minnesota, like labor matters here. We have to align and we have to have political questions that are long-term. And then that evolves into a set of design questions. It was, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I have a sense that you're that you have your finger on something profound in the context of the change that this country's enduring of late that personifies in Trump and it personifies in Trump. He tapped something, he exacerbated something. He manifested something. He brought he gave something a vehicle to come to life. Yeah, to and to be electorally relevant. He and he electoralized it. And and it is something that is profoundly dangerous to the country because of what he wants to harness it to do and what people around him are willing to tolerate. So there's that context, which we, you could talk about forever, but like, how have you fought that change in Minnesota, I guess, is, is my question. Like, what have you learned about what works, what doesn't work? What's coming? What's not coming? What are you seeing? I don't have all the answers about this, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't pretend to. I, I think what is unfolding right now is so complex and so dangerous, and people are using all kinds of words to describe it, like polarization, or you know, like there's like there's a set of political science questions that are emerging out of it. So I, you know, shoreism. <laughs> you know, like we have all these these debates about what to do about this. Um, my instinct has been that there is something about democratic resilience and democratic potential that is completely essential and that the politics, like how we do politics, 
has to come down because I do believe there's a connection between people's disempowerment, their lack of agency that devolves into a kind of nihilism and atomized, individualized experience that then gets swooped up in things like Facebook or social media or conspiracy theories, but you can you can trace it to almost like, like what happens to the person? What happens to us when a vacuum is created a political meaning and I don't have any material or 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 pers- psychological even experience of agency? If I'm completely in Marx's sense alienated, what happens? So, so much of the political construction has sucked the capacity for human agency out of it. It's technocratic, it's uh, market-based, it's consumer-oriented, it's atomized. And I'm not saying that makes, like, agency makes people not racist. That's not true. But if you have a sense of the future, if you have a sense of hope, if you have a real belief that I have a vehicle, which then forms me, like if you were part of a labor union in Tumwa, Iowa in the 1980s, I mean, we got fucked. We got fucked. We got fucked by global capitalism. And like, you know, and frankly, like the international at that time, there's a whole documentary about it, which I watched later in my life. I was like, oh, that's what happened. You know, like it's, but but what happens to that person when we completely abandon the responsibility for somebody to have a vehicle? I have a union. I have a place on the workplace. I have a bargaining committee. And it's not just that I get wages. I get politically formed. I'm in a political community. There's someone in my face about what I believe. I think that we have some power. And the decline of those vehicles is in and of itself dangerous. And it abandons, it like creates this, this, this terrain, this like fertile ground. It's like, well, what grows in its place? And I think something that grows in its place is Trumpism. And a desire for, it's like, it's sort of like there's a desire for authoritarian. There's all these conditions, I think, that get created by that. So the solution I don't have is what are the ingredients? That's almost the question I've been asking. What are the ingredients that produces a different political identity and creates agency, but is scaled enough to resist what we're up against? And I don't think that the answer to that scale, this is like the fight I'm in all the time, (laughs) I believe we, elections are a part of it, but how we do elections and the lack of ability to see that we have to build something in which is human, like the politics also have to have a human scaled component. It has to have scaffolding. So you can't just turn people out and mobilize people all the time. Like you can't, it's two dimensional. Like, so whether we're talking about either I'm in, engaged in elections, which if you go all the way down, I'm an individual who votes and then gets marketed to. Or in mobilization, I'm an individual who makes a particular choice to either go to a protest or to click a link that I got from Move On. Like, that's not producing responsible, mature political people who are part of a collective of some kind. It doesn't doesn't teach any of those lessons. And then secondly, I believe, like, we have had a lot of rehearsal in our organization about participating in a multiracial democracy. We don't have that in America, so we have to rehearse it together. So we have Black Muslims, Black Americans, like African Americans, Black immigrants, white working class people, white, what you call more like middle class people, 
Latinx immigrants, we don't use the term Latinx, to be honest, like Latino immigrants. Um, and then the question for years was like, how does that not all siloed? And we started to build a framework that we call internally multiracial solidarity. This is the part that I feel like, you know, do I want it on a podcast? We do not operate out of an anti-racism methodology. We operate out of multiracial solidarity. So that means everybody has a stake, including white people. Like you have to connect white people to their self-interest, their purpose, their, their own desire for power. And they, over time, see white supremacy as something that white multiracial solidarity, we have a shared stake in dismantling <laughs> because it's connected to capitalism. It's connected to all, you know, these. It, and so I, I think we came to sort of a conclusion about that. We did a survey. We had 5,000 surveys that we did in a set of churches in greater Minnesota, which is basically not the cities, mostly white people. And the thing that we identified out of it was people were having tremendous economic hardships that they never told anybody about because shame, because individualism. So we started to construct public spaces. We would say, look, the results here are that 400 people have either had a foreclosure, are in credit card debt, can't pay medical bills. Did you know that about the other people in this room? And if not, why? And who wants to share? And uh -oh. people just... <laughs> and then we'll have a conversation about why will we share about that? It's not your fault. It's this whole thing. You don't have to... It's not you. So then people like can cross this bridge into like, oh, it's not all on me. My husband got Alzheimer's and we lost our house. And I am so ashamed. I couldn't tell anybody, including people in my church. So how do you dismantle the shame so that people can enter into a political space? So now who do we blame for that experience? It's not, you know, it's not Abdullahi. <laughs> it's not Abdullahi that like made your house, made you lose your house or made you sad that your town is shutting down because of corporate agriculture. Now, is that changing how people vote, those conversations that we had in like, you know, Wilmer? Not yet. I mean, not enough. Not enough. I think we have changed how some people vote, but like not enough. Not enough that uh, a metric in uh, the, the dial on the New York Times would notice. <laughs> like, you know, but that rubric of how you build democratic multiracial solidarity I think is it is the orientation to like navigate through. And then the the reason I became sort of obsessed with um, the work that Heather McGee, Ian Haney Lopez, and Anat Shankar Osario were doing kind of post-2016 was I was like, we have to do some of this work at a bigger scale so that we're having a public discourse in the context of our 2018 elections, which was when our governor's election, it was post 2016 high stakes for Minnesota election. It was like, we have to build a multiracial identity team that's big enough that, you know, 3 million Minnesotans could decide to join it. So we can't do that just as us. We're going to have to build a C4 
But the second reason why we work so closely with Anat is she has a strong part of her theory is not just that like, this is what you say or what politicians should say. This is what we say. Her theory is that you have to get people to say it. So so, So there was a marriage between like, oh, I have core base of people. I have people I can equip to say shit. I have like literally thousands of them. And they have to say shit, not to just ourselves. They have to stand in the grocery line. They have to go to their PTA meeting. They have to be in their church basement. Like, it's like going down into the weeds, you know? Like, how do they have these, like, I mean, social media world would call it micro-influencers, you know? Like, but in my mind, it wasn't, it's some of it we did online, for sure. Facebook groups, all this stuff. But, like, if you go all the way, it's also, like, how there are nodes of um, social capital, There are nodes of social capital. And the question is, can you equip those nodes that actually are connected into networks, not only online, but some aspects of in-person, like hyper-localized knowledge is a real thing that can scale. (laughs) It's like, what is the thicket of nodes? And you can, all any organizer is trained how to do this. You walk into a workplace, you find the nodes. That's who you're looking for. You're looking for the people with the most nodes. They have the most connections. I think you can do that in a town. You can do it on a block. You can do it in church. So then the second question is, okay, well, if we know this thing about social capital and nodes, how do you layer into that social media, digital strategies, what does field mean? I'm putting that in quotes. That isn't a two-dimensional list and people who are paid $15 an hour to go like treat them one, 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 one. You actually are activating nodes. So like, how do you do data if that's part of what you're trying to figure out? <laughs> you know? So we're trying to figure out how to activate nodes and, and then we're, we're equipping those people with an orientation, with messaging or a narrative strategy then can we build more immunity? There's people who feel like, uh, and and I understand it actually, um, who don't like health analogies or like body analogies. When it, but it, in fact, it's a um, one of my deep colleagues who's Jewish. She runs Jewish Community Action. There's like some kind of anti-Semitic history around. But but I had a metaphor in my mind, kind of coming out of 2016, that was an immune system. How do we have an immune system? And we both inoculate, we inoculate people from Trumpism. What is the inoculation strategy? So that they're onto it. What is this? And is an invitation into a future in which they are at the table in a multiracial democracy, including white people. So if we could layer digital data, this brilliant narrative strategy, but put it in the hands of people and map the social capital and at the same time, get the candidates for governor to echo it, you know, like build the echo chamber, which we did. That was what the primary way we used our C4 at that time, which is the, you know, there's a story in Hari's book, which is about this, how we use the precinct caucus strategy to shape the candidates' campaigns by leveraging our endorsement power that way. Like not just give us this issue we want you to run your campaign like this. We want you to say these things and we want you to not say these things. Like we want you to be in our immune system with us. That was basically kind of our ask. 
anyway, I got all over the place, but like that, that it's the agency question, the scaffolding, seeing people as nodes and in relationships and communities. And then from there, figuring out how you layer on the other dimensions that could amplify and scale it in the context of a real live political, political moments that are unfolding. We're doing the same kind of thing right now on public safety charter amendment in Minneapolis. And that's a much smaller scale. That's like, I mean, it's 250,000 people. This is the thing I think people forget about scale. Like everything is actually at smaller scales. You can do something in Minneapolis going to have national impact. And I know Minneapolis, like it's a small town. Like we know who's who in the zoo. How do we use that for what we're trying to do? What I would hope is over time, the electoral industry would think, ask more of these questions because I think there are huge design implications and how you move resources implications. And as things happen where it's like texting is dead, now digital ads are dead. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we go in these cycles in the electoral world of like, like you try a tactic and then it dies because people get onto it. It just sees people in this very two-dimensional way. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ask the question of like where they're situated. But I'm not equipped. Like, I don't know how to build that. Like, like I even think about it like a it's a technology question. Like, I don't know. Like, we partnered with Empower because I think Empower and a couple of these other things are trying to ask this question. But we're not even close to there. In talking to a lot of people for the years that I've been doing this podcast, some of who are sort of fully in that electoral arena, some some who run organizations that I think are quite analogous to yours that are community organizing organizations. Oh, no, I saw that. You interviewed a lot of people I know. <laughs> <laughs> In many parts of the space, there's a realization of the efficacy and the power of organizations like yours. And there's an attempt to fund them and to glue them into the political world and to use them as glue and to use them for the power that they have. And then there's other folks who don't understand it or know it or see a different mechanism for moving people. Yeah, yeah, they don't see it at all. Right. Yeah, there's, right. yeah. And maybe that's more of them. Um, Probably the more of them, but yeah. For some reason, when you've been talking about this, I heard in my head Sarah Palin sneering at Obama for being a community organizer. You know, Interesting. there was something more to that in my mind than just going after the other side for their roots. There was something about the threat to the way they organize from the way that we organize. I'm wondering if you could talk to the campaign, the electoral elite, the consultants, that that part of the world, what would you say that they should be doing differently? How can we win on the DFL, the Democratic Party, the progressive side. But it's more than that because it's it's not just for the sake of the party winning. It's for the sake of saving the country and saving the people in it from the depredations of the powerful, right? I'm not at the highest echelons of the electoral I say, I was going to say machine, but it's really not one thing. It's a huge, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not a monolith at all. It's, it's disorganized. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> there are parts that are organized. But it's, no, I'm fully really 
aware that it's like disorganized. Yeah, it's not. It's, so a, like, it's a giant flotilla you know? that is not all pointing <laughs> the same direction. It's a giant flotilla that we try to like cherry ring together for presidential, you know. So I don't have some big like conspiracy theory about the electoral world at all. The thing I've been pushing on the most is like, is not, is not like everything's all wrong, but I wish we were asking better questions. We do not have to sacrifice exactly like the short term and the long term. So there's something that we know how to do right now. And I'm not saying we should throw all that out. (laughs) The van, the state, you know, like all the different ways we should. I'm not suggesting that at all. We have to like build the plane as we fly, et cetera, et cetera. So that being said, I do think we have to plant seeds. What I think of as more important questions than how do we win this election? And that will produce, I would imagine, greater wins in the future, the more, more capacity to, if you're on the Democratic side, I'm speaking from partisan perspective right now, but like, like that we could win more in the future. So if we were asking longer term questions, if we were placing people in historical conditions, like what, why did we end up with Trump? I, we actually just, a set of us just worked on the thing is like called a Midwest analysis. And one of the things we have in there is a timeline of like the last 40 years. It's like we have to put what's happening in the context of the John Deere strikes that happened in the early 80s. We have to have a longer memory. Secondly, I think people have to wrestle with this question about how people engage with politics. What is their experience? And so then how do we build scaffolding and infrastructure for politics that like these design questions I'm asking that is producing agency, that's producing hope. Cynicism would be like, why say hope? But people have to have hope to do democratic, even with with a big D, people have to believe there's a future to join our team. They have to. You have to believe things could change. You have to think it's possible that we could have universal childcare, and I am not working eight jobs. Like that is a possibility through collective action in government. (laughs) No one believes that right now. Well, there's a lot of negotiation going on in my city about- Where are you? I'm in Washington, DC. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. About what of those human priorities we can fund and, and improve. And that's a result of- you know, the narrow victory we had in 2020. hundred percent. Yeah. So there's this inevitable connection between how we do in all of these elections, local and federal, and whether we have setbacks or advances, even if they're not as big as we'd like, or they're worse than we could imagine. One of the trickiest things for people who are sort of non-partisan organizers is the electoral consequences are so drastic sometimes in policy. A lot of times you think uh, nothing ever changes, but actually a lot of things do change. Oh, a lot of things change. Yeah. I totally agree. And so you can't, like, I think a lot of people have moved back into elections that that had forsworn them, you know, because they just see what happens. There are some states that have just gotten taken over by the right and are gone, and they act and behave so differently than the states that we've held on to or taken back. And so you're there. I mean, like Minnesota is a close state 
Like it is, it is a very close state. It's held, it's held on by, you know, by the efforts of people like you, right? Like, yeah, no, we held on like, like, you know, <laughs> I see that. Like, I hear you talking about this effort to talk people into multiracial solidarity and it's inspiring, you know, but then you have somebody else just thwacking people with Fox news or, you know, a message of white solidarity or grievance, I guess to some extent, like it's this, why I called this thing, the great battlefield. I just see this multidimensional war by another means going on in this country. It's so complicated. We're so riven. Something's different now about the threat to this country. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, you just said a lot of stuff. You said things have the stakes of electoral politics have actually increased dramatically. So like, because what we're fighting over with every election, it's multiracial democracy versus white minority authoritarian rule, which is not democratic. So like, that's what's at stake. Even down right now to our Minneapolis level, that's the fight we're having. We're having that fight in this election right now. So the stakes are enormous. And so as those stakes rise, what I hear you saying is, A, do we have the luxury of like building these things so there's on-ramps for people? That's a legit question. What are all the dimensions that have to be scaled? Like it's not one ingredient. We don't have a media infrastructure like Fox News. We are not shaping people's consciousness in the kind of like hegemonic way that I think right wing media is doing. We have a hell of a trouble with thought control on our side. We really, I don't, we, the thing is, is I don't think we could do thought control. <laughs> We're not going to have just like propaganda. Or even when we do it, it's, uh, we don't, we don't like it. We don't want it. So you have to do something different. The thing I think Democrats or like our side, which I actually feel like we just have to get out of the idea that where this is like two parties, that the battleground is two parties. That what I do think that we have to get out of that. The battleground is not two parties. The battleground is multiracial democracy, whatever word you want to put on that versus like authoritarian minority rule. And that's not Republican. Right wing populism. Like right wing populism. Well, right wing populism is animating the power to dismantle. The, or to consolidate or rig the rules in such a way that you will have essentially and, and utilize the structural problems in our constitution and American government to consolidate power. That's what we're dealing with. And I think what I'm saying is even as we're dealing with that, and yes, we have to leave everything on the field in every election, we also have to be asking questions about how we design this in such a way so that every election cycle we go through, we are growing concretely the potential for people to understand that that's what's happening right now and join our side. So you have to ask questions that are about what is going on in human beings, in communities that actually give them the ability to, I mean, this is now getting very philosophical, but it's like they have the ability to make the choice to enter politics on these terms. And we have to produce that capacity. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do elections, blah, 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 at all. I'm saying the way to see an Isaiah or a Faith in Minnesota or a Take Action or a Lucha or an OOC or a, like whatever, like whatever you're talking about, 
is not as field, as not vended field for mobilization. It's way more deep and durable and connected. Way more than that. It's way, there's so much more going on than that. Like, yes, we can effectively mobilize votes. Like, Lucha, I mean, these are just, uh, these organizations, Florida Rising, blah, 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 are doing the biggest IE field programs, bigger sometimes in some places than the party itself. That is a huge capacity, and I don't devalue that capacity, but it is way more than that. And so if we're trying to deal with the complexity of this problem, we ha- like, like see it differently. The Muslim coalition of Isaiah is transforming and holding how Somali people in Minnesota are voting because they know who the nodes are. You will never know. So like, how do we deploy this other capacity? And then the thing is, is Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota and take action, I'm not putting us in a special category, like we're going to be here the day after the election and we can steward things to the next place. Like we can steward things into the next stage. So I wish we were seen as more than vended field. And I wish local and state politics were not constantly subsumed by D.C. parochialism. I remember reading the founding of the Heritage Foundation. It started with school board fights. Yeah. Part of the reason for my podcast, my tiny little thing in this world, it's a very small audience, but like to try to bring together that breadth of movement to regular politics, the progressive left and the pro-democratic centrists, the, the whole, I mean, it's just the same thing as getting Manchin and Sanders on the same goddamn page. The threat is so big. The other side is so bad right now. We have to have both wings. We have to have the whole thing. But I think the whole thing doesn't mean uniformity. And that's what's so interesting about it is that like you might be working through a liberal religious angle. Somebody else is working through a racial angle. This coalition is, it's infinitely textured. Every person is different. Every community is different, but they have to align sometimes. They do. Yeah. Align is a great word. I use that word a lot. Align is a great word because it allows for separateness. Sometimes your interests align. Sometimes (laughs) our interests align. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's so frustrating when we fight over small differences to the detriment of the whole, even though those are important fights too, often. Some some of them are very important fights. You know, I think the fight that's going on inside Democratic Party politics that's about the fact that we are a multiracial coalition. Is that when you're referencing shoreism? Black people. Yeah. What is the agency and power of people of you know, AAPI people in the party and whose agenda is being driven and how do we negotiate? You can't negotiate away people's like rights. or you know? That's substantive. But some of the stuff you're saying, I agree with, it's not substantive. I mean, my wife is a elected ANC commissioner. ANC is the Advisory Neighborhood Commission in Washington, D.C. So it's the smallest, it's representing like 2,000 people or households. And And so the issues are, should you build on top of the buildings on Connecticut Avenue? Are the sidewalks too bumpy? You know, just highly local stuff. Hyper local. And yet people can be very exercised about, you know, about 
small differences of opinion about how their neighborhood is going to take place and are, how are you going to have affordable housing and how much change are you going to allow and how is the planning that's coming from the city affect? I mean, this is politics. Politics is, is little stuff and it's big stuff. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, that's exactly right. It is politics and it's high, it's very important politics. And it's like actually an important venue for people to be exercising political I really, really, really enjoy hyper-local politics. And the thing that's so fascinating to me about it is it's like you can be working on the presidential campaign, you know, to beat Trump. <laughs> and that feels like a certain way. It's intense. Like we're in this, you know, it's like it's, it's and, and it is really big and important. But what's kind of fascinating is like even at that neighborhood level, it'll feel as high stakes. And it's just as complicated in some ways. People can yell in both contexts. Definitely a lot of yelling. Yeah. yeah. So, Doran, I've talked to you for like an hour and 20 minutes. I feel like we could talk about this the rest of the week and it might be profitable for some people to listen to. And, but like, is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? Are there other things that you'd like to bring to this small venue I think we covered a lot of ground. People will have gotten to know you and, you know, where you're from and, and have a sense of what your organization is situated, where I'm situated. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, and, and like, I, I like that you mentioned these other organizations that are analogous that are in other States and localities because, you know, they're all different, but they're all, they're kind of, there's, there's a similarity, at least from where, where I sit and they're, 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 they're siblings. How would you understand your place in the progressive ecosystem from Isaiah's standpoint? There's Isaiah's standpoint. It's almost like different facets. So one facet is I really see myself as having made the choice that I have made the choice to be in the field of and kinds of organizations that are situated around the question, how are we building relevant state power that's connected to local democratic agency? And that that is an essential component of national power because federalism. You know, it's always why I want to say people. I'm like, you can't just skip up there. It's like, like because federalism, you know? So like governor's races, County board races, cities really matter. And they really mattered actually in the Trump resistance. We built our whole strategy on federalism. It was like, we are going to give mayors to say no to X, Y, and Z. We are going to turn away this money. We are going to like put up a dome around Minnesota. And also it's building leaders that are going to go on some yes, of them. Too. Yes. Building, all, building all these leaders, like people sharing. Anyway, so I see myself absolutely there and have chosen to be there, like not float into a national organization or into philanthropy or into national political campaigns. Like, no, I, I choose to be located at this, at this front of the, of the project, of the political project we have together. So that's one way I would look at it. The other way I would look at it is this is more like self, not self-critical, but field critical of our part of the field. In order for this to work, what everything that we've been talking about for the last hour and 20 minutes the organizations that we steward have to be about organizing people and, and developing organizers and hold themselves accountable to achieving political relevance. 
And that means two things, not completely getting sucked into the business model of being vended for mobilization by the electoral industrial complex. Which again, I'm just going to say is not a monolith. It's doing its thing. I don't have a conspiracy theory about it. (laughs) Okay. And the second thing is taking very seriously that we are building a muscular collective base that we can demonstrate over time that grows. And that's very hard. So I am also positioned in a place where I want to push us to be serious about both. Like, I think it's, it's for us to play our most necessary role on the flotilla. We have to construct real vehicles that have power, that have bases, and that our power is coming from that. Our power, it's like a union. Our power is coming and we're not doing the shortcut. My critique of the national field is the national philanthropy, donor, political campaign mobilization machinery has to help incentivize that at the local and state level and not just extract from it. Is anyone doing a halfway decent job of that? There's some three quarter decent way job at it. I don't think we're doing it. I don't. I don't think we're doing a good job at that. I think we need different architecture. So I have an experiment right now um, that is about an organization in which the board is made up of state power directors. And and we're building kind of like a C3 and C4 warehouse with an LLC attached to it that could move strategic projects that state-based organizations need and collectively pool resources and then have that driven down into the state projects. Like, and so you do need national staff, but what that, I even hate the word national local because I think it's confusing, but it's, you need strategic capacities that are beyond a single state or local project. You have to link them in some ways and someone has to play that role. But the question is, is who do they serve? Like, am I playing that role because I serve the capacity building, the power building? I'm accountable to that versus accountable to that. So we're we're doing it. We make the future, which is this community messaging project. We're we're constructing that way. We're talking. We're launching something called the State Revenue Alliance, which is about helping state configurations, labor, community, faith have like a long term progressive campaign trajectory to tax the rich and fun, cool shit. (laughs) Like, you know, like, but the point is like, we have to root it down, which doesn't mean we don't need a fight at the national level about the reconciliation bill. But then what's the scaffolding that says when that billion dollars comes to Minnesota, are we prepared here to implement it? So I just, I think we need to do more work on figuring out what is the design between quote unquote national local like, what, what do we mean by that? And what is the design? Where does power rest? And how do you, like, actually amplify and take full advantage of the dimension of work, political and organizing work that's happening in states and cities? Super interesting conversation today. Um, just This really was. You're a very good interviewer. <laughs> You're a very good guest. <laughs> yeah, you, you, got, you got me out of my shell. Yeah. <laughs> well... I hope we, we, we have a chance to, to Me too. visit again sometime. And I'll subscribe on my podcast list. Some of these episodes will not be a fit for you. 
some of them yeah. weren't so just yeah um, i don't know i have a pretty broad range of interests so i'll some of them might not fit but because i have a lot of interest in the sort of the political tech companies that and that yeah. and that I noticed and that. that yeah and and different things like that but anyway great to talk to you um anything else you want to say no i don't think so this was good That was Doran Schrantz. Doran is at isaiahmn.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.